love doing what I do because I get to react, I get to interact with people on a daily basis all day long. I get to meet people, I get to hear their stories. That motivates me. And it's amazing what people will share. I'm getting a little bit of a ring. Thank you. It's amazing what people will share with their mailman. Especially a guy like me who have, I have a bunch of apartment buildings, so I'll be standing there for 15 to 20 minutes at each building that has a set of boxes with 100 people coming down to get their mail. So I get to see and meet and hear people talk about everything that's going on in their lives. Sometimes I think I should get paid as much or more than like a therapist gets paid because I hear everything. It's pretty wild. But it's a blessing because I get to meet people. I get to hear their story. I get to know who they are. And it gives me opportunity to tell them why I am the way I am. And that's why setting Christ apart as Lord and being ready and serving him by sharing that, that hope that I have, that's a major part of me. I love it when people on my route ask me, why do you always smile? I'm like, because I smile a lot. It's just it's my thing. I'm, I'm a happy person, just naturally. But that comes from the joy that I have in Christ. I have something that's eternal that can't escape me. So my happiness, it might fade, but my joy is eternal, so my countenance won't change based on my circumstances. My feeling about what's going on is not going to affect what I believe about the joy that I have in my heart. And I'm ready to share that because God has wired me that way. He's given me that opportunity, so why not run with that opportunity? The third scripture that I'll share with you is near and dear because it makes all of this book true. And it's 2 Timothy 3.16 and verse 17. It says that all scripture is God-breathed. That means that God inspired every single word in this book. He helped the writers write in their own form what he had to say. They're his words. He inspired them. All scriptures God breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, the Bible is not just a collection of books that were penned by over 40 authors over a 1,500-year span of time that somebody came in the future and said, you know what, let's put all these together and we're going to make a book out of it and just see how it goes. That's not what this is. The Bible is literally breathed out by God. He inspired the whole book. So he took these 40 men or so and he gave them the words to speak in their personality, in their writing style, so that it would come forward for us to know God and what he's about and what he's done for us. These 66 books were purposefully and perfectly put together by God to tell a cohesive, congruent, and complete story of God's creation, sacrifice, and redemption of all fallen humanity by his awesome love, which he himself bought with his very own blood. The work on these pages and these words bring us hope. They teach us who God is. And why he created us. What he expects of us. How he commands us to live. And ultimately where we will spend eternity. In light of these three verses, let's take a rapid run through the whole of scripture. We're going to run from Genesis to Revelation. And we are going to see 
how we can answer the question, why Jesus? We're going to make a case for Jesus as creator, savior, sustainer, and king. By the end of our time together today, based on his holy word, my prayer is that we should change the question from why Jesus to why not Jesus. I'm going to give you six reasons why you should choose to follow Jesus. And the first reason to note is that God created the heavens and the earth along with every living being. If you turn to Genesis chapter 1, you don't have to. I'm going to, I'll quote it. Verse 1 gives us our first look at God. And verse 1 and 2 together give us our first look at God as who he is. He's three persons. He presents himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. The Hebrew word for God in verse 1 is Elohim. It's a plural noun, but it's used in singular form. It gives us a glimpse of God's nature. It shows that he is father and son. He is spirit and body. And verse 2 goes on and says that God is revealed as spirit. So it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God hovered above the waters. So God created the heavens and the earth and immediately began to equip that very earth to sustain life. On the first day, he created light to illuminate and set the world in motion, literally. Picture a ball of water and it's starting to spin and we have the first day. And God says there was evening and there was morning the first day. On the second day, he separated that water that completely engulfed the earth, that big ball of water that we can picture, and he separated it from the water that was above. There was a water canopy, and he put the sky in between it. So when you look at this picture that's up here, you can see the sky. Imagine water all on the earth where that grass is, and at the top, there's another water canopy that covered the earth, and that made for a perfect environment. So he called that sky. He separated the waters. He also spoke vegetation into being. He put grass on the ground. Trees started to sprout up that bore fruit. And they were all of the same kind. They weren't, we didn't have one turn into another. They were all their own kind. At this point, the inanimate part of the earth the things that don't have life in them, just the structure of the earth was finished. On day four, he spoke the sun, the moon, the stars into existence. So we have the sun, which the earth rotates around. So now we have this ball spinning, and it's spinning around the sun. Absolutely necessary, as Dr. McDowell said, if it were any different than the way God created it, we would not be able to live on this earth. So he created air, sea, and land. The teleological structures of the earth were there. They were, in, they were set in place so that we could survive once he created us. On day five, he creates the animate world. Now we have animals. We have the birds of the air. We have the fish of the sea, the great sea creatures. And then finally on day six, he makes land animals. He says, let there be, and they were so. And then his culmination of creation, his greatest accomplishment, he makes man in his own image. Verse 26 says, 
Let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Once again, we see God in three persons. We see Father, Son, and Spirit. So God, the Son, who is Jesus, is present in creation. And if you want to dig a little deeper into Genesis, feel free to join me on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Because we're doing a study verse by verse through Genesis. Sorry for the shameless plug. I had to do it. But if you really want to dig into the Bible, join me. It's worth it. So this brings us to our second and our third reasons to follow Jesus. Number two, God rescues and restores despite the rebellion of the people he created. God rescues and restores despite the rebellion of the people he created. Chapter 1 of Genesis is like a panoramic view. And sorry for the people that are in my group. You've already heard this like several times. But it's like a panoramic view of creation. So picture a movie. The beginning of a movie, you have this broad picture of the skies. And you see things from a distance. And you see all this land. And it's kind of just hovering over. And then all of a sudden, you start to see it telescope in to a small portion. And you see the characters that are going to be part of this movie. And now we're in the scene. And that's what happens in chapter 2. It's a telescopic picture of creation. You see what he does with man and with woman. God gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth and provided for their every need. The fruit of every tree was given for them to eat. The only exception to, the freedom was, to this freedom was a prohibition from eating any fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Sadly, when tempted and deceived by the serpent, Eve ate the very fruit and Adam did as well. They sinned by doing the one thing that God forbid them to do. How they did it, I can't explain it to you. It's a mystery. But they did. So God then cast them out of the Garden of Eden. He cursed the serpent who deceived her, who you'll find out from other passages in the Bible, is the devil himself. He curses the woman in childbirth. He curses the earth by making it very hard for man to cultivate it. Thanks a lot. So guys, if you're struggling with your lawn, with weeds and things, you can thank Adam for that. <laughs> and as God is cursing the serpent, we see the first prophecy about Christ in Scripture. In verse 15 of chapter 3, it says that God will put enmity between the devil and the woman and between his offspring and hers he, that offspring, Jesus, will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will strike her offspring, Jesus' heel. To temporarily cover the sins of Adam and Eve, God offers the first animal sacrifice and he uses the very skin from that animal to cover their nakedness. So God did banish them from the garden to prevent them from eating from the tree of life which was also in the center of the garden so that they would not live forever. In chapter 4, we find the first murderer ever recorded in history. By chapter 6 of Genesis, the world is in total disarray. Sin was rampant, and God planned to send a global flood to destroy every living thing. The account of Noah brings us to the third reason to follow Jesus. Number three, God chooses sinful people to carry out his purposes on the earth. Despite our very obvious sinful behaviors, God still chooses mankind to be the agents of his plans on the earth. God chooses Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. 
One for each of them. All right, you caught me. They are there to restore humanity on earth. He commands Noah to build an ark to prevent him and his family and two of every kind of animal from perishing in the upcoming flood. God flooded the earth and Noah and his family survived. After the flood waters receded, God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them the very thing he said to Adam and Eve in the beginning, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Noah was a, righteous and, was a righteous man and blameless in God's sight before the flood. But right away he plants a vineyard after coming off the ark. And he gets drunk on wine and his son Ham made fun of him because he was naked in his tent. And his other two sons covered him up. They wouldn't even look at him as to not disrespect their father. So Noah cursed one of Ham's sons because of this. After the account of the flood, more and more people were born and inhabited the earth. They sinned against God by trying to construct a great city that would have a tower in it that would reach to the heavens. So God came down and he confused their language. So for everybody that can't speak German or, or Russian or, or Spanish or whatever you can't speak other than English, there's why the Tower of Babel was your that excuse. So God destroyed it. God then chose Abram from among the descendants of Noah. Abram was a liar and an adulterer. But Abram trusted God. He believed that God would do everything that he had promised to Abram. God made a covenant with Abram and changed his name to Abraham. God used Abraham to become the father of the Hebrew people. Through his son Isaac, whom God had actually commanded Abraham to sacrifice, but the angel of the Lord stopped Abraham from doing it right at the last moment. Through Isaac, that promise was fulfilled. Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, had Jacob. Jacob was a deceiver like his, like his grandfather, Abraham. He became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, who was born to the wife he loved more than any other, was sold into slavery by his sinful brothers. Joseph lived in Egypt, where he was doing well for a short time until he was accused of rape and thrown into a, to a prison left there to rot. However, the Pharaoh had a dream. Not having anyone to interpret that dream, the cupbearer who was the cupbearer to the king who happened to be imprisoned with Joseph at one time had a dream. Joseph interpreted that dream for him and what he said came to pass. So he remembered Joseph and he told Pharaoh about it. So Pharaoh called Joseph in and Joseph interpreted his dream, a dream of a seven-year famine. Seven years of Plenty, and then seven years of famine. So Joseph was placed second in command only to Pharaoh. He was the prime minister of Egypt. And he was given the wisdom of how to deal with this famine that was upcoming. And he saved the world by controlling the, the, the food that was on the earth so that he could sell to all those that were in need. The famine also devastated the land of Canaan, which is where his father Jacob lived with his brothers. This forced Jacob to send ten of his sons, he had twelve, ten of his sons to Egypt to buy grain to feed his family. He wouldn't send the youngest son, Benjamin, that was Joseph's full brother. 
He was afraid to send him because of what might happen to him because he was the only other brother from Rachel. This was done to fulfill a prophecy that was given to Abraham about his descendants being forced to live in a foreign country for 400 years where they would be enslaved and mistreated. After 400 years of slavery, Moses, who happened to be a murderer, is called by God to deliver the Israelites out of the bondage of slavery. After God inflicts the Pharaoh and the Egyptians with ten plagues, Moses leads the people across the Red Sea into the wilderness near Sinai. God gave Moses the law, and he gave him the authority to lead and judge the Israelites. Then upon the death of Moses, Joshua became the leader of Israel. He led them into battles to overtake the land of Canaan. This was the same land that God had promised to Abraham's descendants. Joshua was a great leader, and nearing the end of his life, Joshua said these words to renew the covenant between God and his people. And some of you may have these hanging over a doorpost or in your kitchen. He said in Joshua 24, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. After the death of Joshua, the time... the the time of the judges began. Israel would sin against God. Then they would repent. And then God would send a judge to judge over them. But then that judge would die and Israel would sin and he would send judgment. They would repent. He would send another judge to, to rule over them. And then the, that process repeated and repeated and repeated throughout the book of Judges. Some of the judges were honorable, some were not. Samson, he was the mighty judge. But even more so, he was a very sinful man. He was led astray by his own evil desires. But in his, in his last moment, he repented of his sins, and God used him to kill more Philistines on the day of his death than he had his whole life. But what's interesting about the book of Judges is that it ends on a very sour note. Judges 21-25, the last verse of the book, says this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Notice that God still used these sinful people. But after the time of the judges, God raised up king after king. King David was considered to be a man after God's own heart. Even though he was a lying, cheating, adulterous murderer. Because of David's sin, Israel split into two kingdoms. Israel had ten tribes to the north and Judah two tribes to the south. Many of these kings were evil men. They worshipped other gods and they led the nation astray, away from the one true God. Some of these men even sacrificed their own children in the fire to the false god Molech. in sinful idol-worshiping practices. They were adulterers, idolaters, murderers, and thieves. During the reign of these kings, God raised up prophets to warn the kings of upcoming judgments. 
More often than not, the kings refused to listen to the prophets. The kings persecuted the prophets instead of heeding their warnings. And by the word of the Lord, the prophets predicted the events of the future concerning Israel. And because of the predominant sinful behaviors of these kings in 722 B.C., or B.C.E., depending on how old you are, the Assyrians invaded the northern kingdom of Israel and took it off into captivity. And finally, in 587 B.C., the Babylonians carried the people of the southern kingdom of Judah into captivity. While some of these prophets lived during the times of the kings, others lived during the times of the exile. Together, these prophets predicted the events of the future of Israel and the promise of a coming king who would save Israel. These prophets, along with Jesus' claims and miracles, point us to the next three reasons to follow Jesus. The Bible is littered with prophecies about the coming Messiah. It predicted his birth, his ministry, his suffering, his resurrection, and his very nature and character. I'm just going to share a few of those real fast with you. Genesis 3.15, I already mentioned. He would be born of a, he would be a human born of a woman. He would reconcile the people to God. He would crush evil at his own expense. In Genesis 49, he would be the descendant of Jacob's son Judah. And in Isaiah, he would be the descendant of Jesse's son, Jesse's son, King David. In Micah, we find that he would be born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah, he would be preceded by a forerunner. In Isaiah, he would appear in Galilee and be a light to the Gentiles. He would also perform miracles. He would teach in parables. In Deuteronomy, God promised another prophet like Moses. In the Psalms, he will be called God's son. In Zechariah, he would enter Jerusalem while riding on a donkey. In the Psalms, he was foresha the foreshadowed, the, it foreshadowed the betrayal of Jesus. In Isaiah 53, we see that he'd be rejected. In Daniel, he also was predicted to be rejected. In Psalm 22, he was to be despised. In Isaiah 53, he was to be oppressed. In Psalm 22, he was to be mocked by the people, shaking their heads. In Isaiah, he would be beaten and spat upon. He'd be hated without reason, as it says in the Psalms. He would become a stranger to his own brothers. He would be numbered with the transgressors. His hands and feet would be pierced. His suffering would include thirst. He would be forsaken. His faith in God would be mocked. He would be stripped of his clothing. He would suffer for the sins of others. He would die. Zechariah, Zechariah foreshadowed the piercing of Jesus. He would be buried in a wealthy man's tomb. He would be a light to people around the world. And finally, in Isaiah 49, 6, he would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That brings us to our fourth reason. God sacrificed everything to redeem humanity. The God of the universe stepped out of heaven to walk this earth as a human being. He didn't give up his divine nature. He revealed himself as the second person of the Trinity. Jesus was born from a virgin, lived a sinless, perfect life, faced persecution from the religious elite, and suffered a horrific criminal's death. God alone made these sacrifices on behalf of all humanity. Who would do this? Why would anyone do this? The Apostle Paul says this to us in Romans chapter 5. You see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, sacrificed himself to free us from the bondage of sin and death. He gave his life to redeem and restore all of us. He suffered a brutal beating and was led to the place of the skull to be crucified. About 1,000 years before Christ, King David, amidst his own persecution and pain, prophesied about the type of death that the Messiah would endure. And that's where I'll pick up Psalm 22. Verse 7. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And down to verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. 300 years later or so, the prophet Isaiah spoke of the crucifixion of Christ. And we find a very, very familiar passage to people that have been in church for any period of time. We find Isaiah 53. This is what the prophet said. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. And he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. And here's the very key verse. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are all healed. Jesus sacrificed his human dignity, his status as a good teacher, his following, and ultimately his earthly life to show his love for all mankind. He laid down his life for the sake of humanity. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me say that one again. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Man is without excuse. In Romans 6.23, Paul goes on to say that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We sin and cause separation between ourselves and God. Jesus lived a perfect life in order to be the spotless lamb that could be sacrificed in our place. God gave himself up for us to be alive. God sacrificed everything. The fifth reason to follow Jesus is that he was resurrected from the grave. Amen. 
As Sean McDowell explained in the video, the resurrection of Christ is one of the most powerful arguments for the existence of God as creator, sustainer, and king, but also redeemer. It's the most dominant reason to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus said, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to take it up again. Jesus gave his life freely on the cross because he knew that he would rise from the dead. He was in complete control of the situation. All four of the Gospels record the facts of the resurrection. You find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the women went to the tomb early on Sunday morning. And they all found either what's said as an angel or a man that shined brightly. And every time they said, you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Go into Galilee and await for him. He'll meet you there with his, with his disciples. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to more than 500 men. 500 eyewitnesses. At the same time, the resurrection is the very essence of the hope that all Christians possess. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. Without the resurrection, we're to be pitied among all people, more than all people. We have no hope apart from the resurrection of Christ. That's why when somebody asks me what my favorite holiday is, can anybody guess it? It's not Christmas. It's Easter. Christmas brought us the Savior, but on Easter the Savior rose. And we put all our hope in the resurrection of Christ. Yes, he had to be born to die, but it's the resurrection that makes our way. That is what makes it true. I like Christmas just as much as the next guy, but I'm going to bank my hope on Easter. And as long as I have breath in my lungs, I will shout it from the rooftops that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord and Savior of the universe. That brings me to the sixth and final reason to follow Jesus. Jesus claimed and proved that he is God in the flesh. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, The Apostle John says these words, mimicking Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And you go down to verse 14, and it says... The Word, Jesus, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The prophet Isaiah spoke of Jesus when he said that the virgin would give birth to a son and she was to name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
The prophet continued by saying that this child would be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Jesus fulfilled prophecy after prophecy to confirm his identity. He performed miracles that only God could do. He even raised Lazarus from the dead. He used I am statements that were deemed so blasphemous that they were worthy of stoning by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was born, I am. I am from above. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. See, when Jesus said, I am, all throughout the book of John, Jesus was claiming to be Yahweh. This was not just a simple statement to say a character trait of who he is. This was a divine statement. He was saying, I am the God of the universe. I am the God of creation. I am who I am, as he said to Moses at the burning bush. Jesus was not just simply a good teacher or a prophet or some crazy man. Jesus was the I am. He is Yahweh in the flesh. There is no way around it. No one can escape it. It is what it is because he is what he is. Because he says, I am who I am. Jesus accepted worship, which only God could accept. For this, the Pharisees tried to stone him. Jesus demonstrated his authority over nature, over weather patterns, over agriculture, over the demons, over sickness, over physical disabilities, and he even conquered death. Jesus can be found all throughout the Bible. His name may only be found in the New Testament, but he is clearly present all throughout the Old Testament. In Genesis, Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe and the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he's the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he's the commander of the Lord's army, like what we sang about earlier. In Judges, he's our judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is the seed of David. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra, he's our faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of everything broken. In Esther, he's our Mordecai or our advocate. In Job, he's our ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, he's our shepherd. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he is the meaning for life. In the Song of Solomon, he's the loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the Prince of Peace. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is our glorious Lord. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he's a faithful husband. 
In Joel, he is the outpourer of the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is our judge and savior. In Jonah, he is the risen prophet. In Micah, he is the ruler of the world from Bethlehem. In Nahum, he is our stronghold. In Habakkuk, he is the watchman. In Zephaniah, he is mighty to save. In Haggai, he is the restorer. In Zechariah, he is the branch of David, the one who was pierced for us. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness. And in Matthew, he is the king of kings, the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. In Mark, he's the servant, a miracle worker. In Luke, he's the baby in the manger, the son of man. In John, he is the son of God, the living word, the way, the truth, and the life. In Acts, he's the savior of the world, the ascended Lord. In Romans, he's our justifier. In 1 Corinthians, he is the resurrection. In 2 Corinthians, he is our comfort. In Galatians, he's our liberty. In Ephesians, he is the head of the church. In Philippians, he is our joy. In Colossians, he is our completeness and the glue that holds our world together. In 1 and 2 Thessalonians, he is once again the coming king. 1 and 2 Timothy, he is our mediator between God and man. In Philemon, he's our benefactor. In Titus, he is our blessed hope. In Hebrews, he is our perfection. In James, he is the power behind our faith. In 1 and 2 Peter, he is our chief shepherd and our chief cornerstone. In 1, 2, and 3 John, he is our truth and our everlasting life. In Jude, he is the foundation of our faith. He is our security. And in Revelation... He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the first, the last. He's the beginning and the end. He's the keeper of creation and the creator of all. He is the architect of the universe and the manager of all times. He always was. He always is. He always will be. Unmoved, unchanged, undefeated, but never undone. He was bruised and brought healing. He was pierced and eased pain. He was persecuted and brought freedom. He was dead and brought life. He is risen and brings power. He reigns and brings peace. The world can't understand him. The armies can't defeat him. The schools can't explain him and the leaders can't ignore him. Herod couldn't kill him. The Pharisees couldn't confuse him. And the grave could not hold him. Nero couldn't crush him. Hitler couldn't silence him. Other religions can't replace him. And the world cannot explain him away. He is light, love, longevity, and Lord. He is goodness, kindness, gentleness. And he is God. He is holy, righteous, mighty, powerful, and absolutely pure. His ways are right. His word is eternal. His will is unchanging and his mind is on us. He is my redeemer. He is my savior. He is my guide and he is my peace. He is my joy. He is my comfort. He is my Lord. And he, 100%, absolutely, without question, 
is my Savior and Redeemer and Lord God of all eternity. I will bow before him at every opportunity. So now, with all that we know about Jesus, we must ask this question. What now? On the day of Pentecost, when the people heard this same gospel, they asked Peter and the other disciples, what should we do? Because the message had cut them to the heart, in Acts 2.38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. Repent and receive the Holy Spirit. Turn from your wicked ways and be made new in Christ. There may be some people in this room or even online that are absolutely certain of where they stand with Jesus Christ. And for that I say praise God. Praise God for that confidence in his amazing work of redemption in your life. Some of you may be questioning your relationship with God. Praise God for that. Because Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We should always test to know that we're in the will of God. To know that we are part of his kingdom. Some of you may be totally unsure where you stand with God. To that I say, seek counsel. I would be more than honored to listen to your story, to know where you stand, and to share some of the truth that God has put into my heart through the power of his word by, by the way of the Holy Spirit. I'd love to help you wrestle with your doubts and your questions. Some of you may not even have a clue what it means to follow Jesus. Or how to even enter into a relationship with him. It starts with God. He did all the work. He made the way. And he draws men unto himself. So I can show you what it means to follow Jesus. I can show you what it means to confess your sins. And become a child of God. I don't know where you're at in relation to Jesus right now. I can't know anybody's heart. Just know this. The Bible says that it's appointed unto man to die once. And then the judgment. You get one shot. That's it. One shot at this life. You get one shot to be with God. To be a part of his kingdom. Makes you ask, what now? We don't need to ask why Jesus. We have the proof from the scriptures. This book tells us why Jesus. The question now is, why not Jesus? Why not? So today, as you sit here in these pews, and you're online watching, 
I want you to do a couple things. I want you to, number one, count the cost. It costs something to follow Jesus. It costs a lot. I know what it was like before I was chosen by God, before I came into his kingdom. I know what it was like to be that guy before Jesus. And I tell you what, I don't like B.C. Phil. He did a lot of things that were okay, but he didn't do anything that honored God before I had a relationship with Jesus Christ. So count the cost. Believe in Jesus and repent of your sins. Follow him. Don't ever walk out of a room after hearing the gospel and not know. Don't let that happen. Because you don't know what the next day, week, month, year, you don't even know what the next minute holds. My mom had a stroke a few weeks ago. I don't know how many people knew that, but um, they got to her pretty quickly. And she's, made, she's making a full recovery, and I praise God for that. She was actually at my daughter's wedding, which we were very fearful she wasn't going to be able to be there. But you just don't know. You don't know what the next minute holds. So not only take advantage of your time here on the earth with those that are around you that you're close to, but make time for Jesus. He's calling each and every one of us into a relationship. He wants us to be saved. His will is that none should perish, that all should come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So the question is, why not Jesus if you don't already walk with him? Or why am I walking for myself when I'm supposed to be walking with Jesus? Let's bow our heads. Father, I come to you right now in awe and wonder of who you are. You are creator. You are redeemer. You are sustainer. You are the breath of life. You've given me hope for a future. You've restored everything that needs to be restored. You paid the price for my salvation. Now, God, I pray that you would touch hearts right now, that you would come in and pierce the minds and hearts of every person hearing your words, everybody that heard who you are based on the power of your scripture. I pray, God, that you would draw people into yourself. I pray that lives would be changed this morning, Father. But I pray most of all, God, that you be glorified and that, God, we make you loved us, we can love you. God, I honor you this morning. I praise you, and I just thank you so much.